0: A fine-air DC-8 cargo plane is loaded up for its trip to the Dominican Republic from Miami. What caused this flight to crash right after takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
1: I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have... Lissa. (laughs) <laughs> Usually everyone says their name, but you oh. haven't been on before, so that's yeah, okay. Yeah, you've never done this before, yeah. so
0: you're, you're, it's okay.
1: So, gotcha. okay. Lissa is a good friend of Christie's. We went to college together. We did. She's also one of our patrons. Yes. I am. Yeah. And she's only here because uh, we know her.
0: <laughs> I just want to say, really say that. she really like, enjoys that's not a this, benefit, by the way. But, yeah. She really enjoys this, by the way, though. She sends us commentary occasionally while she's listening, and that is... Fun I read. love
1: when Christy screenshots something from you and sends it to us, and I'm like, that's hilarious.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's funny, because we can tell like when most of our patrons are listening, not because like we look for the new listen, but because most of you usually comment something or send us commentary or write an email. So we're like, oh, know what they were doing just now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> but it's pretty cool. So yeah, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to this thing. Also, so welcome surprise.
1: to our new patron. Oh, yeah. Kieran. So, welcome, Kieran.
2: Thank K- you for becoming a new patron. And thank you for being our second flight crew patron.
1: Yes. More details. I mean, I- I'm sure you probably got details by the time you're listening to this, but more details to come because we just got the notification yesterday. So. For those
0: of you that don't know, that's our highest tier, and it gets you, like, personal time with us, basically. Yeah. That kind of stuff.
2: We also realized, so not to triangulate anyone, but our two flight crew patrons live on opposite ends of the world,
0: and we're like on the opposite end of that. So,
2: (laughs) so we're trying to figure out how we're going to do our live stream Zoom call thing.
0: Between the three of us, we are in not even close to the same places. Like time zones, all three of us, (laughs) all three sets of the, the people that need to be involved, we are just all wildly different time zones.
1: You could pro- It's probably the farthest you can be from each other as you can. Anyway, thank you for joining and being a patron. Thanks to everyone who is a patron. Uh, Lissa, thank you, because you are a patron. Yes, thanks. <laughs> and we don't usually have someone on that's a patron, so it's kind of nice. Yeah. And uh, remember, this month's story episodes are when you fall in love with aviation. And then if you want, you can subscribe to the newsletter. We send it out at on the first of the month, or whenever you sign up for it, you'll get the one for that month. If you don't receive it, let us know so we can, you know, send you one. You
2: yeah, might be that. the one person whose email address is invalid. Yeah. Yes. Beware, <laughs> because then we, that we is don't happening. have a way of contacting you because your email address doesn't work. Right. So
1: if you didn't, if you signed up and you haven't received one yet, make sure you check in and. and with us to say, hey, I didn't receive one. What's going on? So.
0: Yeah. Because we are getting some like m- email not delivered message. currently. Yeah. So. Somebody's is not going through.
1: All right. I think that's everything covering all the pre stuff. So, <laughs> you know, it's the most technical of terms. It is
0: the technical term.
1: <laughs> so, Nick, what are we covering today?
0: So. Today we are covering Fine Air or Fine Airlines Flight One Hundred and One. Yes, their official name is Flight Airlines, but they went by Fine Air. They're fine.
1: <laughs> really, with the jokes
0: <laughs> out, already. Out. You'll find out now. Nah, you'll find out how not fine, but that's okay.
2: <laughs> no, literally, at one point, one of the NTSB investigators in the air disasters episode was like, "They didn't live up to their name," and I'm
0: like, "Damn!" I wouldn't say that's entirely true, but they're—you'll find out. Okay, cool. So this happened on August 7th of 1997. This was a Douglas DC-8-61F, or freighter, with the tail number November 27 Uniform Alpha. We'll get to tail numbers again here in a minute.
2: No, these planes did not belong to United Airlines previously.
0: No, weirdly enough, this one belonged to Japan Airlines prior to being a freighter for fine air. Fine air. Yes.
1: Are they a cargo carrier?
0: They are only a cargo carrier. Okay. This was a scheduled flight from Miami to Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. The Captain the flight was to be Dale Patrick, or Pat Thompson. He was 42 years old. He had 12,154 hours, of which 2,522 hours were on the DC-8. The first officer was Stephen Petrosky. He was 26 years old. Pretty young. 2,641 hours total. And he had 1,592 of those on the DC-8. However, 978 of those hours were as a flight engineer. 614 of those hours were as a first officer. So he was relatively new to the DC-8 in reality. He was also a relatively new pilot. The flight engineer was Glenn Millington. He was 35 years old. He had 1,570 hours total, of which 683 were on the DC eight, so kind of a similar story. And then there was a fourth person in the cockpit. This fourth person was Enrique Soto. He was thirty two years old, and he was a company security guard.
1: A company security guard. Yes.
0: So cargo flights, especially in and out of Miami, which there are a lot.
1: Drugs are uh, (laughs) They are heavily
0: scrutinized (laughs) and heavily protected. So. They, yes, they had a security guard, a company security guard on board.
2: Though so this was an entire flight of denim.
0: Yes, denim. They were carrying <laughs> denim. Jeans. Yes. Huh. To the Dominican Republic.
2: They were carrying almost 90,000 pounds. Wow. Of denim. They yes. just really needed denim in the Dominican Republic. I guess. <laughs> they were in dire need of it.
0: We had it. They wanted it. And so we gave we it to them. them to them. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted our jeans. The airplane was scheduled to carry cargo for another cargo carrier called Aeromar, which is a company based in the Dominican Republic with operations at Miami. The cargo for the flight was delivered to the Fine Air ramp between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. that morning. After the cargo was delivered, Fine Air reported to Aeromar that the airplane originally scheduled to carry the cargo, which was November 3 Uniform Alpha, had been delayed en route and would not arrive at Miami in time for its scheduled departure. Aromar then requested another airplane and fine air substituted November 2-7 Uniform Alpha for a newly rescheduled departure at 12 p.m. instead of the original scheduled departure time of 9.15 a.m.
1: So instead of it being 9 o'clock in the morning, it was at noon. It was at noon. Is that noon,
0: yes. November 2-7 Uniform Alpha arrived at Miami at 9.31 a.m. from San Jose in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, yep. And parked at the fine air hangar ramp... The inbound cargo then began being offloaded at 9.52 a.m. The first pallet of outbound cargo, so the stuff being carried to the Dominican Republic, was loaded onto the plane at 10.30 a.m., and the last pallet was loaded at 12.06 a.m. Oh,
1: cutting it close. Just
0: a little past (laughs) past their scheduled departure time. The flight crew was told to report at 10 a.m. for the noon departure. The captain was the first to arrive when he... Arrived, he went directly to the flight's office to review the flight departure documents. 30 minutes later, the flight engineer showed up and began to perform all the pre-flight checks, including system checks and walk around, as well as inspection of the cargo load. 30 minutes later, the first officer showed up and reviewed the departure documents and went to the airplane. The cargo door was closed at 12.11 p.m., and the cabin door was closed at 12.22 p.m., so 11 minutes later. So now they're 22 minutes past their departure time, scheduled departure time. Cargo, so nobody's going to get mad at you.
1: Yeah, yeah, passengers aren't going to get upset (laughs) because they're at their destination. Yeah.
0: But there is still... You want to keep the airplanes kind of on schedule because they still have places to be. Fine Air's lead mechanic watched as the number three engine was started. The airplane was then towed from the fine air ramp to an area nearby where the other three engines were started. The captain then was to be the pilot monitoring for this flight, while the first officer was to be the pilot flying for this flight. At 12.32pm and 59 seconds, the flight crew contacted the ground air traffic controller requesting taxi instructions for takeoff. The air traffic controller cleared them to taxi to runway 27 right, which was a very short taxi. During the one-minute taxi, the flight crew performed flight control checks. At 12.34 p.m. and 31 seconds, the tower controller cleared the flight for takeoff on runway 27. 27 right, I should say. At 12.35 p.m. and 2 seconds, the airplane's engines were set for takeoff power. The airplane began speeding down the runway for takeoff. At 12.35 p.m. and 25 seconds, as they reached 80 knots, the flight crew performed an elevator check. Pretty standard procedures. 12.35 p.m. and 39 seconds, the crew heard a thump. Four seconds later, the captain stated, V1. Four seconds later, the crew heard another thump. Uh-oh. Two seconds later...
1: I think I know which one this is like. <laughs> no, you don't.
2: Actually. I don't?
0: No. no. Actually, no.
2: The, th- the thump... Nope. Not at all.
0: <laughs> and there is a lot of reason to believe what you think is right. Yeah. But so, it is not.
1: So, since it's not, I, my thought is the cargo is shifting in the back of the plane...
0: I know what you're talking about. You're wrong.
1: Okay. (laughs) There you go. That's not it.
0: (laughs) Two seconds later, the captain stated, rotate. Two seconds after that, the captain stated, easy, 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 as the airplane rapidly rotated and lifted heavily off the runway. Two seconds later, the captain stated, V2, and then positive rate a second later. Two seconds after that, the first officer stated, gear up, followed immediately by, what's going on? The first officer then began pushing on the elevator trim switch, and the trim in motion warning horn tone was heard in the cockpit simultaneously as the stick shaker also activated. That was a really confusing sentence, but in all, he's pushing on the trim switch, and when they do that, there is a tone that sounds in the cockpit that says the trim is in motion. And simultaneously to that, the stick shaker is going off. The airplane is pointed heavily at the sky, currently.
1: Uh Uh-oh. Big idios.
0: Uh-huh. Let's see here, let's see here. The trim in motion warning tone stopped a few seconds later. And a few seconds after that, the stick shaker also stopped, but began 5.8 seconds later. Once again. The crew then heard engine surge noises for about two seconds. The airplane then struck the ground at 12.36 p.m. and 25.4 seconds. Pretty accurate. With the tail striking first in a tail-low, right-wing, low attitude, the rest of the plane then slammed down on the belly, slid across a busy highway, Ooh. and came to rest in a parking lot full of cars, just short of a structure at a shopping center and a large ball of flames. Oh, nice. Yes.
1: But they're okay, right? No. No. (laughs) No, I'm guessing they perished.
0: These flames would eventually do severe damage to the wreckage and everything around it. Luckily, the airplane did not hit any cars on the highway.
1: Oh, that's good. Because it was at a red light. Because of the timing
0: of the lights on either side. Oh
1: my gosh, that's so lucky.
0: (laughs) That's so lucky. The lights on either side, yes, kept traffic from being there when they went through the highway. However, there was one person who wasn't able to escape their parked car in the parking lot before the aircraft and the fire engulfed his vehicle. Oh. In all, Is this all...
1: the other one I'm thinking
2: of?
0: I don't know what you're thinking of. Did no. we
1: not cover it that long ago? Embraer? Ket. the Not Embraer. Emory Airlines? What was that? No. No? No. No. I I have, I have a feeling... No. I know Same did... type of airplane, actually. I know they did elevator checks, but... I'm like, I don't know. It same, could be similar.
0: Same type of airplane. And yes, I gave you a lot of reason to believe that one, too. No. No. Nope. nope. No. <laughs>
2: okay. Nick's just pulling out all the red herrings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: There's there's a lot of signs of a lot of things here, but you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're not really, I mean, you'll see.
1: And it's just like my thought process was like, load shift, and then it wasn't load shift. I'm like, maybe it's an elevator problem, but it's not an elevator problem, so.
0: Nope. Okay. <laughs> All four crew on board, and the one motorist perished in the accident. So a total of five, which was actually extremely fortunate because this was in a very busy place.
2: Uh, if a you, motorist? The, the guy sitting in his parked car. Yeah, the guy oh, who was sitting oh, in his parked car. Okay. If you look on Google Maps, you can see that's not a small roadway there.
0: See this field down at the bottom? That's the field they crossed. <laughs> they crossed, actually, that road fine, struck this open field to the left of it, and then went through that other road there and ended up just in front of this big shopping center.
1: Can you imagine? Okay, it probably wasn't a Samsung store back then because Samsung no. wasn't a thing. But, like, trying to buy a phone or something and a yeah. plane comes there was, in front of the window.
0: There was a, an interview done on the news with a guy who was like, I just saw a plane coming straight at my face.
1: Yeah, see? <laughs> I, I was wondering. What it would be like to be like? There's a plane. He's like that's I like was like just coming th- at me. He's like I
0: was just standing there for half a second and I saw a plane coming right at me. Then hit him. He got Dude. lucky. Ooh. It's Ooh. actually it is really fortunate that nobody else got hurt because really it, it crossed a highway, a busy road, and it it went into the parking lot of a busy shopping center.
1: I wonder what those people, both sides of the light, were looking, ready to go. <laughs> this plane cuts through. They're like. Well, wow. They're all
2: just stopped like, well, I guess I'm not going anywhere from here. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and this was not the going middle that way. of the
2: day, right? Yeah, yeah, this was
0: in the middle of the day. Yep. Noon-ish, busy, busy, busy. In the noon hour? Yes. Busy, busy, busy. This <laughs> just yes.
1: one of those things where you're like, did that just happen? Did I just see that happen? Sure did. Oh.
0: Yes. Yeah. The enormous fire broke out and it burned everything.
2: Everything.
0: It was a really big fire.
2: Well, because they had 48,000 pounds of fuel on board?
0: If you really want, there are actually pictures. These were a series of photos taken by somebody at Miami. Dude. Where you can see the airplane, and then you can just see the ball of flames. That's
1: crazy. That cloud is huge.
0: Yeah, it was a big fire. Big boom. Big boom.
1: Big crash boom. Which tends to happen when planes, you know, crash.
0: Yes, generally.
1: (laughs) Especially when they're full of fuel.
3: Yes, generally.
0: (laughs) Well, since they were on takeoff... Pretty full of fuel. Yeah. Bad, bad, bad timing. Bad, bad, bad. day. Timing. Okay.
2: This investigation was led by the NTSB, who arrived hours after the accident, having just left the investigation of FedEx Flight 14 in Newark a week before.
0: <laughs> Great. Oof. <laughs>
2: it's a bad time. Especially since these are both cargo carriers. Yeah. Like, what's yes. going on, friendos? <laughs> hmm. Both black boxes were recovered from the site and were sent to Washington, D.C. for analysis at NTSB Labs. While waiting for those results, investigators started with interviewing the multitude of eyewitnesses. Many reported seeing sparks and fire from the outboard engine on the right wing, engine number four, along with popping noises. One key witness, another fine-air DCA captain, as it turns out, specifically said that not only did he see continuous flames from the number four engine, but he noticed that they were climbing at a really high rate to the point that he could see the tops of the wings and fuselage.
0: Remember when I said the nose was like pointed at the sky? I wasn't kidding. That's
2: pretty high. That's pretty like vertical. Yes. (laughs) This was a huge clue for investigators. But first to make sure, they visually inspected the engines and found that the turbine fan blades had damage that indicated the engine was spinning with power on impact. From just this information, investigators were able to conclude early on that engine number four was surging, a phenomenon we talked about before in episode 54 with Southern Airways flight 242. Surging happens when there isn't enough airflow, and it occurred in this case because the plane was pointed nose high and not enough air was entering the engines because they weren't pointed in the same direction as airflow. So pressure builds up in the engines. But with this, investigators also concluded that the engine wasn't the source of the problem, but rather a symptom. What caused the plane to take off pitched up so high? Investigators calculated from the ground scars and wreckage that the nose was 23 degrees high, while the flight path was 26 degrees downward. So a huge angle of attack of 49 degrees, which meant they were seriously stalling. Yes. Very. Paperweight from the sky. Yes. Pretty much. It was determined that it was unlikely to recover from such a stall at such a low altitude. Given that this is a cargo aircraft, let's look at the fairly obvious possibility of weight and balance issues. The weight and balance form that the flight crew had had showed that the center of gravity, or CG, was calculated to be 30% MAC, which means mean aerodynamic cord. This means that the center of gravity was calculated to be 30% of the wing's width back from the leading edge of the wing. Does that make sense?
1: 30% back from the leading edge?
2: Yes. Yes. But only like 30% of the wing width. So here's the leading edge, here's the trailing edge, 30%, that's where CG is. Okay. So So it it wasn't back from the edge of the wing, it was
1: 30% up toward the leading edge of the wing.
2: Yeah, so in previous episodes, we've done it as percentage of the plane. This,
1: this is, is percentage, percentage of, of the wing.
2: wing. Got it. So it's closer to the leading edge of the wing than the trailing edge. This value was within limits as the aft limit was 33.1% MAC. So is it possible that the recorded 87,923 pound load of denim? shifted like in National Airlines Flight 102 that we covered in episode 32. Spoiler alert, no.
0: <laughs> Already told you no. Already
2: told me no. But, but they don't know that yet, so let's right. let's
0: get into it. And to it. be honest, there are so many symptoms that make that seem exactly right. Yeah. The airplane suddenly went nose high immediately on takeoff, and, it, it, and it just stalled straight yeah. down.
1: That's what happened in National Air. Which I don't nope. think had happened yet. Or Nation Air. Yeah.
0: Nope. That was way closer to now.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was in 2011. <laughs>
2: yeah, so. so. <laughs> I, I say that, that we've done it. They don't know about the future. Nope. In sifting through the wreckage, investigators found 60 bear claws, which are locking mechanisms used to keep the pallets in place. Of the 60 found, which there were 85 aboard, for the record, 57 were unlocked.
0: Unlocked? Yep. Yep. They were not holding the pallets.
2: And metallurgists found that impact would not have made them open. So the person who loaded it, who was
1: supposed to lock them? Lock the load so it didn't shift, just didn't
2: lock 50 of them. 57. And actually, it's more than that. And yes. Hmm. Hold on. <laughs> Why do they have but, a but, job? But, okay. but, but.
0: You're right. But Listen. also, you're wrong.
2: <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Listen.
0: This is just going to get really confusing because. You're also wrong. But,
2: but you that guy should be fired. I mean, come on.
0: No. Actually, they did the job right.
2: So investigators headed over to the company Aeromar, which are the ones who loaded the plane. They were contracted by Fine Air. And the supervisor there confirmed that it was practiced that they only lock the bear claws for the first pallet and the last pallet. Huh. Why?
0: Because they pack every single row. And... In order to maintain balance, they put in empty pallets. And those empty pallets then hold the load of anything shifting in any direction. So, so it then can't...
2: acts as one giant unit rather right. than individual pallets.
0: The entire cargo load, yeah, is one giant unit in right. the okay. end. Okay. so they can't no... shift forward and back because they are locked on the ends.
3: Are these rated to hold that much
2: weight?
0: That's what I thought. But they claim that it...
2: They claim it was fine, and investigators just accepted it, which I think is weird.
0: Yeah, I thought it was weird. They
2: should probably if they have a them there. Why wouldn't they lock them? Right. That's well, and none of them were broken. Well, I mean,
0: and my thing is, is like having seen the way they look and the way they work, it wouldn't take them any time at all to lock each pallet in place.
2: It was just practice. Yeah, and I don't know why this was just accepted, but it was. Unlike so... in National
0: Airlines, where they actually had to like strap everything down in a very specific manner, which they, and didn't, they didn't do, <laughs> yeah. but that takes a lot of time these bear claws they literally are like up snap it grabs the edge of the the pallet that's it like it takes that long to snap it into place well
1: to be fair the the way you paint the picture right unlike in um the nation air episode the i can understand why these pallets if they national 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 air
0: nation Um, air was a different one
1: whatever you know what I mean. You know the one I'm talking about. National. So all the palettes smushed together because the palettes in general are probably square, rectangular, right? Yes. So them being together that way, it makes sense to me that – it, it, it would be okay if they weren't locked because if, the, if you shove them together enough and they're closely locked together, they can't really move much more from where they are.
2: Do you mean it's not like a giant SUV that can roll
0: through the plane? No. <laughs> no,
1: it turns out. <laughs>
0: turns out. That wasn't going to happen. And
1: it turns out if a pile of jeans, you know, like fell out the back, they'd, it probably wouldn't hurt the airplane that
0: much. <laughs> no, but it turns out they made really good kindling.
2: Yeah, oh, that was terrible. That have, was terrible. That went dark.
0: It was a lot of flame. Any questions? Are you lost at all yet? No?
2: I'm good so far. Okay. Okay. So investigators looked at the crew and if they could have done something wrong. At this point, investigators had black boxes to use, kind of. Let's just say that they had the CVR, which showed a very professional crew, and that all was going well until rotation. Just a second after rotation, the captain called out, easy, 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 when the nose rose sharply, which was seen on the FDR. The FDR then reflected a forward movement on the control column to move the nose down, which was more of a release from pulling back rather than a push, if that makes sense. Right, so instead of pulling back so hard, you're releasing it, so yeah. you're not pulling back.
0: Yeah, you just release a little bit of the pressure.
2: But then the first officer pulled back again, in full, or two seconds later, then moved forward after another two seconds, then pushed all the way forward four seconds later. What caught investigators by surprise was the trim-in-motion warning horn, just not even a second before the stall warning. This meant that the first officer was trimming the plane during takeoff rather than before takeoff on the ground as is procedure. So investigators made some calculations and found that the 87,923-pound load and configuration given to the crew, that meant that the pitch trim should have been 2.4 units nose up. They just say units. I don't know what the units are. They have a chart.
0: I would assume degrees, but I could be wrong. They just said units. I don't know what units are on the DC-8, so.
2: Whatever the case may be, they calculated it to be 2.4 nose up. And the CBR recorded the crew doing exactly that before takeoff.
0: Yep. They set it to 2.4 units.
2: So, trimming... It was just the first officer trying to help get the nose down. It wasn't like, oh, he forgot to set it, or he set it to the wrong thing. No, he did everything right. And the, the plane just didn't act
1: the way it was supposed to.
2: Yep. Right. Well, if the load didn't shift and the plane was configured correctly, what happened? Then the media started getting anonymous reports from fine air crew that they kept being given excessively heavy loads.
0: The airplanes were too heavy.
2: So investigators pursued that path. Think more along the lines now of the ataj Yes, attache.
0: Yes, yeah, episode twenty-seven. Was it twenty-seven? No, no.
1: Episode I, nine. No, I just it said was it.
0: no. I said it was a seven twenty-seven. Oh,
1: 727. Episode ten. It was episode ten,
0: not episode
1: nine. Sorry. Yes, it was a seven twenty-seven. Like, there were a lot of there were a lot of numbers
0: if you coming hadn't out. spoken over I'm me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was a seven twenty-seven.
2: On the fine air load sheet, the gross takeoff weight was listed at. 282,482 pounds with a maximum takeoff weight on runway 27 right of 315,400 pounds. Reasonable. So was that information wrong that they were given? Here's where things get really freaking complicated. Yeah. At 255 in the morning, an Aeromar employee faxed a cargo pallet loading form to Fine Air for flight 101 which listed 88 thousand nine hundred twenty three pounds what do you notice that number is bigger
0: by
3: by about a thousand
0: exactly a thousand.
3: Oh yes it is
2: a fine air flight follower calculated everything based on using the original plane november three zero uniform alpha and fax back the weight distribution form with pallet weights and cargo compartment position numbers so basically Aromar said hey here's the load and then fine air said okay here's how to put it in the plane but then the plane changed, and the next fine air flight follower on duty at 6 a.m. redid the calculations for the new plane and found that because November 2-7 Uniform Alpha was a heavier plane, 900 pounds of cargo needed to be removed to comply with the landing limits in the Dominican Republic. And they just didn't do that? Just, just wait.
1: Also, wait. So they went to a DC-8. What was the one before?
0: It's also a DC-8. It's just a little bit different. So each DC-8, mind you, both of these came out of passenger service at some point in their life. Every airplane on Earth can be configured just a little bit different, even if they look exactly the same. So these two DC-8s might have had slightly different configurations at some point in their life that made one heavier than the other.
1: Okay. So that's why one would be heavier than
0: the other one. Yes.
2: So they recalculated the CG as more forward than the pilots preferred, so the flight follower adjusted the cargo locations by moving cargo from pallet 13 to pallet 17, which was previously empty. At 7 a.m., they called Aeromar and told them to remove 1,000 pounds, so they rounded up from 900 pounds just to make it easy, but had only spoken with a security guard, and not the one for the accident flight, who set, and this guy said that he would give the information to the operations manager. He called the operation manager at home, who told him to change the pallet loading form to remove 1,000 pounds, and he would remove the cargo when he got to work. Pallet G, the heaviest pallet at 6,950 pounds, was chosen, and that was amended on the pallet loading form, which was faxed back to Fine Air. Fine Air did calculations again with the cargo move and 1,000 pound reduction. But the Aeromar operations manager forgot to actually physically remove the 1,000 pounds. Oh
1: my gosh, that's why you don't do that the whole phone tree thing. Find someone who's actually there, who's working, who can take the crap off the airplane, so people don't forget shit. Also, why did no one remind him when he get got to work to take the stuff off the plane?
0: While your anger is founded, <laughs> just you wait.
1: I'm just a little confused here, because... First of all, you should never call an employee while they're at home. When they're not in their work mindset, they're not going to remember, one. Two, if you need to have it done, pick someone to do it who's actually at the airport who can do it. And three, if you're going to wait till the guy gets to the airport, put it somewhere
2: so he knows he has to do it so it reminds him when he gets to work. But also, it's a thousand pounds, so that's not that big of a deal.
0: A thousand pounds in the end actually was not that big of a deal on this airplane.
2: So investigators went through documentation with a much more fine-toothed comb. Okay, so you remember how we talked about alleged dumb? So. (laughs) Is this the Wikipedia? Yes.
0: Yes, so this comes from the Wikipedia page, and we haven't been able to back this up, but... It's not in the report, it's not in the episode. I have a little bit of reason to believe that it might be true, which is the only reason I'm going to bring this up. So. On the airfield was an FAA office, and immediately after this accident happened people working at said FAA office immediately rushed over to Fine Air's maintenance facility where they found documents for this airplane in the trash.
1: Excuse me? That's illegal. That's so illegal. (laughs) That's like the super of illegal.
0: I mean, we're talking the airplane's still in flames, and they're pulling documents for this airplane out of the trash.
1: That's questionable. I don't like that. Right. Right. Are you telling me this is a maintenance problem
2: now? No. No.
0: Okay. Actually. But it does speak to some shady business. Um, because we're talking about airlines that operated with contractors for contracts in other countries. And there's a lot of back and forth. You've got so many different hands in the pot that how could you keep track of anything perfectly? And they don't keep track of anything well.
2: Which I'll get into right now. Yes. So shipping documents, aka the Bill of Lading, which I work with on a daily basis, thank you, showed 89,719 pounds of cargo was delivered to Aromar, and this was confirmed on a scale at Aromar. The cargo was then put on pallets and listed at 88,923 pounds on the loading on the pallet loading form. How was adding it to pallets cause for losing 796 pounds? Yeah, that's questionable. That
3: is definitely questionable.
2: Shouldn't questionable. it weigh more with the, the pallets? pallets? The metal pallets? These aren't just wooden pallets that we're <laughs> talking about here. These are like metal fit into the rails of the plane pallets. Yeah, right. that, I don't like that. The VP of Aeromar, the vice president, then told the NTSB via fax that the cargo weights on the pallet loading form don't include the weight of metal pallets netting or covering. Well, that... that-
0: Is huge.
2: That adds 275 pounds per pallet. So, 4,400 pounds?
0: Plus that extra thousand... We're talking 5,400 pounds oh
2: now. Oh my gosh. That's not, no. So that's not insignificant. So now investigators calculated CG again, and it was more like 32.8%. Still so
0: it's within? Technically reason. within, reason.
2: yeah. The aft limit is 33.1%. So
0: they're it's still pretty
2: within. Close. It's not it's... at the limit yet. Oh, but we're not done. It's a little close. So with this recalculation investigators jumped into a simulator and tried it out. Multiple takeoff attempts were tried, and they used the same techniques as the pilots, but they were able to prevent the pitch-up and stall every time.
1: So what happened now? Yeah, are you telling me that some dunes fell on the back of the plane
2: here? Like, what's going on?
0: <laughs> Seems weird, right? Yeah, all weird. Yeah, they were pretty stumped at this point, too.
2: Loading is performed by a crew of at least four loaders, one supervisor, and a security guard, according to Aromar. For this flight, there were five loaders, a loading supervisor, a security guard, and a fine air supervisor.
0: So there was way more people than they needed.
2: It's kind of weird that there's a fine air supervisor there, too. I mean,
1: to be fair, there should be more, like, of of a checks and balances with
2: another person there. Well, and the VP of Aeromar said that they work in tandem. They work as a team.
0: Yes, which is fair but now you might have too many hands in the pot.
2: Yeah, it seems a little questionable. We'll get
0: more into that in a minute.
2: So while loading, the locks weren't latching for some reason, and it was found that on a few pallets, the cargo was spilling over the sides of it so that the footprint of the pallet itself was bigger and didn't allow the pallets on the bottom to touch. So... So they didn't fit
0: where they were supposed to fit.
2: Which means they can shift. Mm, no. No. It means that they can't get in the plane. So, the Aromar supervisor ordered the loaders to remove three pallets. He says that he then asked the fine air supervisor what to do, who said, moving everything back. He then instructed that pallet four should be turned 90 degrees and pushed back and was tied down in all of position five and some of position four, and the locks in front were engaged. Pallet position two was empty. Then the fine air supervisor denied all of this, and said that he only requested that one pallet be turned around and motioned 180 degrees. Then the air disasters episode that said that every single pallet got shifted back by one space. So, things are weird. The Aeromar supervisor said he put up several locks around pallet 18, the last pallet in the back, and relied on the other loaders to do the same for pallets 3 through 10. The fine air supervisor said he saw that pallet 1, in the front, wasn't locked properly and proceeded to do so as well as locked Pallet 3. He specifically made sure that the locks around Pallet 1 were locked, quote, as a safety because it was the position the flight engineer could see, and if the flight engineer noticed that the locks were down in this position, he might order the plane be reloaded, end quote. Which
1: he should? Yeah. Because then that's how planes crash, people. like, if you did your job right the first time, like, just the
2: first time. Mm Mm-hmm. Then you wouldn't have to unload and reload the plane. So, Aromar supervisor is saying, this happened. Fine Air supervisor saying, no, this happened.
0: Right. So
2: No one knows what exactly happened?
0: This is why I'm saying, you're noticing too many hands in the pot.
2: Right. There should be one supervisor.
0: Yes. Because
1: it, when you have two supervisors, and this, this happens, right? Where it's kind of going back and forth of... Well, I say this. No, I saw
2: this. No, they told me this. No, I told them this. Right.
0: Well, there's another problem with both of these supervisors. We'll get to that in a minute.
2: So here's a quick summary of other problems that were found in this investigation that they didn't take a lot of time on. The printed load sheet was for a DC-861, but the fuel distribution scale was based on a DC-862 and 63
0: Which were slightly different.
2: The fine air load form listed the max weight for pallet position 18 as 6,088 pounds rather than the actual 3,780 pounds. So that pallet was 1,200-ish pounds overweight on the accident flight. There were further discrepancies when compared to Douglas's data for the plane, and the trim setting data sheet also had errors.
1: Awesome.
0: Documentation was a nightmare well
1: that might be why they threw them in the trash <laughs>
0: pretty much actually that is pretty much exactly why they threw them in the trash because they knew documentation was a nightmare at their company
2: yep and, and they didn't want to get caught this incident was not the first weight and balance problem to be investigated at fine air
1: okay see here's what i mean you can get rid, you can't get away with a lot of stuff when the FAA doesn't look into it right
2: but when but, the U.S. Department of Defense does, yeah. So that,
1: and when you have a plane crash, right? Yeah, they have to look at your documentation to see if anything was wrong, etc., cetera, et cetera. They were like, "Uh oh."
2: So <laughs> the U.S. Yeah. Department of Defense, Trash. someone messed up their homework. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the US they tried dep- to hide it. The U.S. Dep- didn't carry the one. Sorry. We we, we keep making bad homework jokes. So the U.S. Department of Defense had actually investigated the airline twice. Once in 1994 and again in 1996. And both times the FAA got involved, which led to Fine Air proposing a redesign on its load sheet. And it never did it. Not before this accident. Because 96 was only the year
0: prior. Yep.
1: I mean, how hard is it to...
2: Bruh, it's I don't a know. Load
0: hard enough, apparently.
2: <laughs> it takes a year to do a load sheet? Okay, if you say so. Now, with all the different stories floating around and no actual documentation of what happened, it made it really hard for investigators to put pen to paper and crank out some numbers. So, quote... The succession of errors made by Fine Air and Aeromar in loading this flight and the deficiencies in the Aeromar and Fine Air loading procedures identified during post-accident FAA inspections made it impossible to precisely determine the weight and CG from the data that was available following the accident, end quote. Based on the calculations and the information they had, investigators knew that the CG was at least 32.8%, but was probably more. But they couldn't exactly determine what. When they were doing their simulations earlier, a CG of 35% acted too quickly in pitch up, but they couldn't determine, like, guess and check what the exact number for CG was.
1: Well, and they don't know exactly what was going on with the load because two people are saying two different things. I have one more point
2: that invest. So, investigators. Particularly the NTSB like to throw a little bit of a hissy fit when a particular tool that they have at their disposal doesn't work properly, and they spend a lot of time going over it, and we don't, because we get the point. The FDR only recorded five of the 11 parameters it was supposed to. That's a problem. Yeah,
0: that's a maintenance problem.
2: Uh, engine data, airspeed, pitch and roll attitudes, vertical acceleration, and microphone keying. It turns
0: out all of those things were pretty much the most important things they needed for this flight. Uh-huh. <laughs> you so they didn't have that data. You
2: might have noticed that I said earlier they had to calculate pitch of the plane at impact from the scar on the ground and the airplane damage. That's because it wasn't recorded.
0: Yep. Yeah, the FDR was a mess. Maintenance at fine air was also known not to be great. Quite a few problems going on here. So here's the thing awesome. with that. In specific, with these two supervisors and why documentation was a mess and everything is because neither one of them were actually properly trained to be supervising a load. Stop! Stop! Come on! (laughs) You didn't have a single supervisor that was actually supposed to be a supervisor there.
1: Come on! So
0: they were pretty much just as good as loaders.
1: You're going to make me cry. I feel like this happens like almost every time if someone's not trained properly. How hard is it to train people properly?
0: It turns out this was really common at Fine Air. Most of their supervisors had no actual experience or training doing supervising of loads.
1: Why? That's the whole that's point. point. And to
0: go along with that, Aromar had a very similar problem. So the contracts back and forth didn't matter. And that meant that there was too many hands in the pot that didn't know what they were doing
2: and no one recorded of it. Of course no one... Fra-
1: okay, first of all, of course the people who were loading that plane didn't want to say what really happened because they weren't trained to do it correctly. It's, it makes sense to me now why the fine air guy was like, I'm going to make sure this is locked so that if the flight engineer happens to see this, we don't have to unload the entire plane.
0: Right. Obviously, they weren't trained on what the consequences were of their actions. They weren't trained on how badly this Affected the airplane. Yeah. Real load masters understand this.
1: A little bit of a shift just back causes the entire plane to become a death trap. Yes. Like you, that's why you have to load it properly so the CG's in the right place. Yes. And that's why your data sheet has to be accurate.
0: Exactly. Thank
1: you. You've got to do your homework. You
0: can't (laughs) not carry
1: the
3: one.
0: And in tandem with this, Fine Air's documentation of training and documentation of maintenance work and documentation of so many things was so deficient. The airline had so many problems. Shocker. This was... I'm shocked. A catastrophe that was just waiting to happen. I mean, (sighs) it was bound to happen at some point, and here it was. As a matter of fact, it was so bad that the airline went under in 2000.
3: Yep. I can't say I'm surprised. Yeah, no.
0: (laughs) We'll get to a really interesting thing after our break here about where the NTSB took this, though. Where they took the blame. Because it's not where you think.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, so what actually happened? They didn't load it correctly? Is that what that happened? Yeah, in the end,
0: it was completely loaded incorrectly and documented unbelievably poorly.
1: And so it was a little bit too heavy, and it was shifted a little too far back.
0: Even the one of the doc, even one of the documents they found had the old tail number on it scratched out with a new tail number put oh in, which is totally god. wrong because it's a different airplane.
2: Oh my god! I would like the record to show that. Said that in the air disasters episode, I did not find it in the report.
0: Yes, we didn't find that anywhere in the report. But point is, we
2: found several discrepancies.
0: They, obviously, they didn't know much what was going about what was going on. Again, we'll talk about this more in a minute, but there's a reason why. And the NTSB pinpointed who they wanted to blame, and it's not who you think.
2: Valentine's Day is coming up. Are you tired of giving your partner the same thing every year? The card, the chocolates, and the flowers can get really boring. Want an idea
1: for something that is totally original and cool?
0: Check out Wild Gallery. They are a small gallery based in Austin, Texas that sells original Native American art.
2: Their art is a great way to decorate your place, whether you need to update your decor or you're moving into a new place like we are. This is a great way to support small business and give your loved ones something different for
1: Valentine's Day.
0: Check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery. That's whiskey, yankee, lima, delta.gallery, where you can make an appointment to see art in person, learn more about the artists, and of course, shop.
2: Again, check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery today.
0: So we're going to jump into findings here, and as we get toward the end of findings, we'll really dive into where the NTSB put blame. So, I I narrowed down the findings I want to read, because they wrote a lot of them. And it's the ones at the end that I'm actually not going to read, and I'm just going to talk about, mostly, because they wrote a lot of them on one particular blame. So, the NTSB found that the compressor surges or stalls were caused by the airplane's attitude before impact. No significant loss of engine thrust occurred. Engine performance was not a factor in the accident. The engines were operating normally. What Sen- were
1: the bumps by the way? The thumps, thumps? The thumps?
0: Um they were engine surges. Oh,
2: they were, they were the engine Well, when surgery? they were
0: when they were just, when they were accelerating down the runway actually, they never proved what those thumps were. But
2: they never proved what they are more
0: than likely it could have been the load shift a little bit but it wasn't significant
2: it was probably more that the plane wasn't balanced well right right
0: so which we'll also talk about at the end of all of this but there was a key thing that happened that they wrote as a little side note in the report that i think would have been one key thing everybody should have gone wow something's wrong
2: but when you think about it so you know how when you have, like, a lot of people sitting in the back of your car, and you're just the one sitting up front, and your car just feels different? Yeah. Like, you feel more of the bumps in the front than normal? Yeah. That's kind of more what that is. Okay. It's just a weird distribution of weight.
0: Yes. But again, we'll get, all to, get to all that in a minute. We found that the airplane pitched up quickly into a stall, recovered briefly from the stall, and then stalled again. Recovery before ground impact was unlikely once the stall series began. They didn't have enough altitude. Nope. If they hadn't stalled in the first place, it wouldn't. But they didn't have any chance, basically. They didn't
2: have a chance, and it wasn't their fault. No, it wasn't the flight crew's fault.
0: Right. They found that the center of gravity of the accident airplane was near or even aft of the airplane's aft CG limit. So eventually they figured out the CG was probably beyond, at or beyond where it needed
1: to be. 33.1%.
0: Yep. They found that the center of gravity shift resulted in the airplane's trim being misset by at least 1.5 units airplane nose up, Uh, so 2.4 minus 0.9 units at 94,119 pounds. They didn't know that, though. They didn't know that, right. The crew did not know that. There was no grounds for them to even know that. They weren't provided the right information because the loading supervisors didn't know either. Because they did everything wrong.
1: Maybe because <laughs> they should have been trained properly. Yeah! Uh. Fun fact.
0: Yes. They found that the aft center of gravity, location, and mistrimmed stabilizer presented the flight crew with a pitch control problem. However, because the actual CG location could not be determined, the severity of the control problem could not be determined. This is their roundabout way of saying, yes, we know the airplane was basically uncontrollable. We don't know to what extent, though. We don't know if literally there was nothing they could do to get out of it. That said, there's another training problem that comes up in here. They found that the mistrim of the airplane, based on the incorrectly loaded cargo, presented the flight crew with a situation that, without prior training or experience, required exceptional skills and reactions that cannot be expected of a typical line of pilot. So, they do say, the pilots didn't know what was happening to their airplane. No. And so they couldn't get out of it. What they are saying there, though, is if they had been trained on it, there's the possibility that they could have.
1: Yeah, but it also said, like, it's not, like, normal it is training not, for a line pilot, so. Not
0: necessarily. So, that's right. But, that's one of the things they suggested adding. Get there at recommendations. But, they'll hit on this again. They found that training for flight crews in dealing with misloading, miscalculated center of gravity, and mistrimmed stabilizers would improve the chances for recovery from such situations. They're saying that this doesn't exist at the time as a regular training, but it should.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) So if they had this training, they probably could have gotten themselves out of the situation because they probably would have recognized it right away.
1: Hopefully. That's the hope.
0: That's the hope. Well, that's the hope of any training in aviation is that you make these things automatic. As soon as you notice something's out of place, you know what to do. Yeah. You do the thing immediately. They found that procedures used by Fine Air and Aeromar to prepare and distribute cargo weight pallet distribution forms and final weight and balance load sheets were inadequate to ensure that these documents correctly reflected the true loading of the accident airplane. Yeah, all the documents were horrible. They found that the security guard was not aware of the airplane change, and he instructed Aeromar loaders to load the airplane in accordance with the weight distribution form he possessed for November 30 Uniform Alpha. Again, this form is in the wrong person's hands, and it's for the wrong airplane, and he's instructing these people who don't know what's going on what to do. Ah! Yeah. So many wrong things going on here. That. Too many hands in the pot. They found that the accident airplane, November 27, Uniform Alpha, was initially loaded according to Fine Air's load distribution for November 30, Uniform Alpha. Further, the final load configuration did not match the planned load for either airplane.
1: What?
0: Yeah, because it wasn't. None of it was right. None of it was written right, anyways.
1: Oh, that's true. Like you're, you're kind of not setting yourself up for success no.
0: there. So no matter which airplane they would have loaded, they would have done it wrong, basically.
1: Yeah, but on the other airplane, it probably wouldn't have caused as much of a problem. There was
0: a chance, anyways.
1: Because the that airplane was physically lighter than a thousand pounds. than this one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much that would have
0: changed. Not much, but, but it was enough to be. There. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that would have made enough of a difference. Though, the The cargo would have loaded the way they initially intended, so there's a better chance they would have made it off the ground that way. Right. They found that the Aeromar cargo loading supervisor failed to ensure that the pallets were loaded according to an approved load plan. In this case, neither load plan was followed, and failed to confirm that the cargo was properly restrained. Didn't do his job, because he wasn't trained. They found that Fine Air's failure to exercise adequate operational control was causal to the accident by creating an operational environment in which cargo was loaded into Fine Air airplanes without verification of pallet weights and proper load distribution and by fostering a management philosophy that allowed airplanes to be dispatched without verification and control procedures in place to ensure that load-related flight safety critical tasks had been accomplished. All this to say...
2: There's no double checking.
0: Completely mismanaged, no double checking, and they didn't have any procedures in place to make all of this happen. They found that the loaders who loaded the accident airplane were not aware of the potentially catastrophic consequences of misloading the airplane and failing to properly secure cargo, and this contributed to the accident. That's a whole part of them not being trained. They found that formal training is necessary to ensure that cargo handling personnel receive standardized instruction on safety critical aspects of loading processes. Yep. Pretty straightforward. They found that if the flight crew had had an an independent method of verifying the accident airplane's actual weight and balance and gross weight in the cockpit, it might have alerted them to the loading anomalies and might have prevented the accident. This one was interesting because, okay, they didn't have the documentation right, but if the airplane could have told them, hey, this isn't loaded what you're telling me you're loaded, the airplane might have been able to tell them itself. This isn't right. I'm not. I'm not good to go.
1: Yeah, that's more of a today technology type thing. Though. Yes, we're talking about 1990s here.
0: Yes, but this is one of those things that kind of catapulted that to actually happening. Which then again, National Airlines still happens. So,
1: there you go. <laughs> yeah,
0: they found that the Federal Aviation Administration inspectors assigned to Fine Air failed to ensure that known deficiencies in Fine Air's cargo operations were corrected. That's where I'm ending my findings, because everything from there through 36, from 25 to 36, is entirely about how the FAA didn't do anything about this problem. They, they, knew. Knew. they knew it
1: was a problem. Fine Air was like, we'll make an adjustment eventually, okay. but they never like double-checked.
0: And to that point... This is how much of a problem it was. Remember when we said the FAA went there and found the documents in the trash? Yeah. They went immediately to the office for fine air because they knew it was a problem.
1: That's a pro. That's okay. That was the
0: FAA trying to cover their own butt.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: This is key. The NTSB spent a lot of time slamming on the FAA. That was the, the office specifically in Miami, but the FAA even as a whole. Because they were letting operations like this... Continue. ...do whatever they want.
2: They did a pew, 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 pew,
0: pew, 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 Somebody in the air disasters episode explained it as... in The FAA inspectors and the FAA personnel in South Florida really let these operations happen because they felt that they were there as part of a business role. They were there to allow these companies to continue to do business. They were there to help them... Do as much business as possible and make as much money as possible versus a safety role. They were there to hold uphold the rules and regulations of the Federal Aviation Administration across the board for all operations in South Florida. And they weren't doing it.
1: That's the whole point of the FAA, too. Like... Yes. That's the whole, that's the entire reason we have an FAA. (laughs) Is oversight. Yes, exactly. And regulation. And if you're not going to do that, what's the point of even having an office there? Exactly. Just have someone come from Washington every couple of years.
0: Exactly. So some of these other findings go into, okay, the FDR didn't work. And that's because the FAA didn't check them. They didn't check the maintenance personnel at Fine Air. They didn't make sure that they were properly checking the FDR and that they didn't, make sure that there was inspectors on site to check operations and cargo loads and they didn't do any of these things just mind-blowing amounts of no oversight yeah on an operation that's moving heavy cargo around the world like mind-blowing it really is and so ultimately the NTSB placed blame on the FAA more than they even did Finair or Aeromar Finair and Aeromar had their problems well-known problems to the FAA. That's the bigger problem.
1: Is the FAA knew and they didn't do anything
0: about it. Right, and it's their job to do something about it. So, kind of crazy, but true.
2: Probable cause? The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of the accident, which resulted from the airplane being misloaded to produce a more apt center of gravity in a correspondingly incorrect stabilizer trim setting that precipitated an extreme pitch-up, at rotation was, one, the failure of fine air to exercise operational control over the cargo loading process, and two, the failure of Aeromar to load the airplane as specified by fine air. Contributing to the accident was the failure of the FAA to adequately monitor fine air's operational control responsibilities for cargo loading and the failure of the FAA to ensure that known cargo-related deficiencies were corrected at fine air.
0: Boom. So, again, they blame Fine Air and Aromar, but ultimately, at the end, they put that whole segment about the F- the FAA because they're like, no, really, it's your fault.
1: I mean, okay, so the FAA probably <laughs> should have done more oversight. That's how that is. But let's yes. be honest. Fine Air probably is the main.
0: Absolutely. Here. They knew they were getting away with this stuff. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And they yes, like,
0: sure. They that's...
1: told us not to do it, but, like, they're not checking. So, so we're not going to do it. Right. So we're just going to let our pilots die.
0: Yes, but this creates. Without the FAA's oversight on these things and without them having that heavy hand, these airlines are kind of allowed to be like, "Eh, it's fine. What we do is fine because we're fine fine air.
1: (laughs) 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 Or maybe you're trash like your documents are. Yeah.
0: In the trash.
1: (laughs) Anyways. Well, they became trash, so
0: there you go. Okay, so let's talk about some recommendations. So I'm going to read through these. There's not. A whole lot, but there kind of is. And we'll kind of skip through some of these. The NTSB recommended to require all 14 code federal aviation or federal regulation part 121 air carriers, which is all air carriers, to provide flight crews with instruction on mistrim cues that might be available during taxi and initial rotation. This is huge. Because this is the one thing that I thought was really key. So there was one little incident that happened, and they wrote it actually in a sub-note in the report and the, under the history of flight. It wasn't even in the story. But Fine Air's what was he, maintenance lead, their lead mechanic, watched as the airplane was towed away. And he noted that as it was towed, they went over a bump and the airplane bounced. It literally lifted up and bounced back down. At the same time in the cockpit, it was recorded that the the captain said, what's that guy doing down there? Which was a cue that mo- both of these people noticed something was off. The lead mechanic later said that he didn't think this was much of a problem because he felt that it was normal for the airplane. I beg to differ. Airplanes are generally front heavy, and for a reason. And generally, yes, okay, you go over a bump and you might see the shock extend, but for it to get a little bit of air and come back down? Holy crap. That right there should have been a sign the airplane was loaded aft heavy. And it was. That right there, that was a key moment that I think was completely glanced over. That key moment right there where both of these people, both of these important people, noticed something was not right. The airplane bounced. Heavy. Just from being towed? Holy crap. That airplane was loaded aft heavy, and they should have known it. Anyways, my opinion, but... That's pretty important to me. And that's basically what they're saying in this recommendation, is that these things should have been cues for these flight crew. When they noticed that the airplane, whoa, leaned backwards just by being towed, hmm, that's not normal.
3: Sketch. Something is yes. mighty fishy here.
0: Yeah, something is mighty fishy here. Uh, too spacious. And arguably, too, that's what the thumps could have been, as, as they were going down the runway, if they had hit a bump enough landing gears literally bouncing down the runway because it's aft heavy. That's ugly. That's very ugly. So they wanted training on that, including in flight simulators and all that. They recommended conducting an audit of all part 121 carriers, uh, supplemental cargo operators to ensure that proper weight and balance documents are being used, that the forms are based on manufacturer's data like Douglas or other approved data applicable to the airplane being operated. Yep. And the FAA principal inspectors confirm the data are entered correctly on the forms. Again, the FAA's fault. They didn't do the oversight. The forms kept being used. The wrong forms. So, they already knew that was a problem. The FAA already knew that was a problem. Recommended changing this. For a year, they didn't. Yep. Blows my mind.
2: I mean, I've worked in an engineering company where... Getting a document changed isn't the easiest thing ever, but there's no excuse for it taking a year.
0: Right. There really isn't.
2: Couple months, sure.
0: Yeah, but a year? Wow. Way wrong. Because this affects how the airplane was loaded, and it affects how poorly it was loaded.
2: And people died.
0: And people died. The recommender requiring Part 121 operators to develop and use loading checklists to possibly verify that all loading... Steps have been accomplished for each load position on the airplane. So, saying that if they actually had a checklist for each one of these pallets that they had to go through, nothing would get skipped, right?
1: Well, that's the idea.
0: Yes. At least, that would be a verifiable piece of paper, too. But
1: To double check, and it should be kept with all the other documents. Mm-hmm. And then investigators would be like, um doesn't look like you lo- use this checklist.
0: Right. And they have a really long written recommendation that's entirely about ensuring that your load masters and inspectors are all trained.
1: Trained properly.
0: Properly to understand, To most importantly, to understand the consequences of their actions when they're loading an airplane. To understand why loading an airplane wrong can be deadly. Deadly,
1: yeah.
3: You want them to know what they're doing?
0: Uh, it's crazy, right? What? I mean, it's... What a crazy concept. What an idea. So they recommended reviewing the cargo loading procedures for carriers operating under Part 121 to ensure that flight crew requirements for loading oversight are consistent with the loading procedures in use. Flight crew needs to be able to check all this stuff too, basically. They recommended evaluating the benefit of the STAN, or SUM, TOTAL, AFT, and NOSE, and similar systems and require, if warranted, the installation of a system that displays airplane weight and balance and gross weight in the cockpit of transport category cargo airplanes that's the whole thing we talked about which we talked about in the past as well but a way of understanding weight and balance in the airplane in the cockpit that the airplane's actually calculating right. itself yeah based I mean, you're on what's about loaded even
1: for passenger aircraft not just cargo aircraft right i mean i'd imagine you can just do that using the landing gear
0: that's what they do you are correct
3: okay <laughs> you <Yep>. are correct <laughs> they basically do
0: they basically use the weight that's loaded onto the because they, they just use basic load cell system Landing gear can tell you how much weight is placed on it makes a lot of sense right so and anymore now there 's a lot of smart technology out there too like the pallets are able to tell you what they weigh what a concepts <laughs> like they actually electronically say this entire pallet weighs this much at this current moment it 's just a little electronic display it 's like fifteen thousand pounds you know whatever it is like they 're literally displayed there and all of these smart systems now are developed so that there's really no question about what's being loaded into what place.
2: Side note: something that was mentioned in the air disasters episode and actually didn't come up in my part at all is that the scales at Aromar weren't calibrated.
1: Mm-hmm. What's the point of even using a scale then if it's not calibrated? Uh, no wonder. Yeah, they had as someone a who,
2: as someone who literally does calibration for a living,
0: you, yeah, you don't have to tell me. It's literally not even that
1: hard be. to calibrate a scale. No. No. Like, really? Come on, people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no. They have a recommendation about inspectors that are assigned to these 121 operators understanding what they have to look at.
1: Training. I'm (sighs) telling you. Yep. It's, like, kind of important. Nah, really? Just a little bit to, like, understand what you're looking at. Like, yeah.
2: That's a plane. Uh,
1: Yeah, you know what I know about this? This is an airplane. (laughs) And this is a pallet. Okay, it and it goes on the airplane.
0: <laughs> and much like the findings, I'm pretty much going to glance over the rest of these because they're entirely about the FAA and the FDR. Which, yes, okay, they're mad about the FDR. I get it. It should be recording every point. It really should. But this has a lot to do with the FAA not doing the oversight.
1: Do you need to put, like, ten recommendations about it? Probably They not. did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, FAA, FAA, FDR, FDR, FAA, FDR, FAA, FAA. They were mad. They were mad. (laughs) Like, I'm skipping over all of those because if I just keep reading them, it's going to sound really, really, really redundant. And that's because they really wanted to make their point clear that the FAA was doing basically nothing about this. Hey,
1: hey you. The person that's in charge of, like, making all of this safe, you. Mm -hmm. Your fault. You fix it.
0: Right. That's exactly what they say.
1: You, that was crappy. You fix it.
0: Yeah, they fixed it by going away. <laughs> yeah. That's ultimately what happened. Because this happens with a lot of operators like this. When they get to get away... Like, they can grow really fast when they get to get away with a lot of things. Because they can make a lot of money when they don't have to do a lot of things. Right. When they don't have to pay for training. When they don't have to pay for maintenance. When they don't have to do a lot of these things because they can just get away with it.
3: If you're and allowed to cut cars, cars, you will. Yeah, Exactly. Basically.
0: And so as soon as you, – because you've probably noticed this is kind of a common thing when we start talking about not very well-known airlines throughout history on this podcast is that shortly after they a go major under. accident happens, they yeah. go under. And that's generally because, first of all, a lot of businesses stop trusting them with their product. Somebody just lost a Bunch insane of amount of jeans.
1: A lot of jeans. A lot of, <laughs> of denim.
0: But also because suddenly the FAA – has scrutinized them to no end or whatever governing body for whatever country scrutinizes them to no end. And they're forced to spend a lot of money to try to make things right. And that a lot of money suddenly doesn't exist.
1: Yeah. Cause they should have done it in increments over time. And instead of doing that, something like this happens and then they have to put all of it out. Right. And then they don't have it. <laughs>
0: this is what a lot of the bigger airlines kind of figured out. And you could argue it's kind of what caused during the early 2000s, we had way too many airlines. Around nine eleven, we had so many airlines, this country couldn't figure out like how to travel. We and, had no clue.
2: And Europe's currently having that problem. Yeah,
0: Europe is definitely having that problem. But there were so many airlines, and it was so saturated that not one of them could stay financially or safety-wise in a good, in a good place. Not any one of the big airlines. And so, eventually they started figuring out, well... If we take you and all your assets, we can use that money to make ourselves both bigger and safer. Which, arguably, good thing. Not exactly a best business practice when you have too few airlines, like we kind of currently have. But, it is better for safety, because now they actually have the money to make sure that everybody is trained as best as they possibly can be. Because they
2: ate everyone
0: else. Yes, exactly. That's why you have now the big three. United, Delta, and American. Whereas before, it was like the big eighteen. Yeah, (laughs) and not one of them was financially sound at the time. Now you could say they're not really financially sound, but that has a lot to do with COVID, and that's just because there's nobody flying. Right, right. So
2: I think the interesting thing to me out of all of that, looking at U.S. airlines in general, is that the cheap ones mm -hmm. actually have really good safety records. Yes,
0: generally. Yes, absolutely.
2: Frontier. You never hear anything about Frontier. There was one time an engine cowling. Popped off. Popped off. that happens. Popped
1: open in flight.
2: Yeah.
0: Things like that And they
1: landed because they didn't want it to come off and fly into the engine.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) But they landed. Right. Right. And no one got hurt.
3: And they did something about that
0: afterward. That's Mm -hmm. a key thing, too. I mean, that's the kind of safety standards that are upheld in the United States anymore. And yes, even for the cheap air carriers. But that's because there is a lot more oversight on them anymore. And... There are less of them to do oversight on and they just have the money to do that. There's just generally a higher standard of flying. But this still needs to be worked on across the world, I could say. But it is it is generally a lot better around the world too. So that's yeah. pretty much it.
1: Yeah, that was uh Fine Air Flight One oh one. Good job. Good job. I, I saw I saw the flight number up there. Boom. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I looked, I used my eyes, it was great. <laughs> thank everybody for listening as always stay safe stay healthy everything's getting a little weird around the world right now with covid again so wear not, a mask yeah wear a mask be safe do do make good decisions <laughs> yes make good choices <laughs> make good choices
0: thanks for being here Alyssa. yeah uh, i know we were talking the whole time but did you have any questions was there anything crazy you wanted to know about on this
3: I was curious whether there could have been anything on the plane that they did not document.
0: There, very possibly could have been. Very okay. possibly.
1: I mean, they did have a security guard on board.
0: That yes, for he, kind
1: of that reason. When they explained
0: it in the episode, they explained that the security guard was more there to protect the airplane than to protect what was going on. Not it.
2: I'm also. To be going on I'm also just like. What did you think one guy was going to do? Like if you show up well, in the Dominican Republic and you get mobbed by a cartel, like this one guy.
0: Some of this comes from an episode we've covered with the FedEx flight that oh, I, that's true had a right. flight crew go rogue. And so yeah. that's part <laughs> that of why they one. had because they wanted to protect these assets that are expensive so
2: that was one of the episodes i got a really fun text conversation from Lisa Yeah, <laughs> i'm sorry you said what before your episode
0: <laughs> yeah that
1: you don't normally have that warning yeah all right well thanks everybody for listening we will catch you next week keep your speed up please like and follow us on facebook and instagram at hardlandings podcast
2: and on twitter at hardlandings pod Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen.
0: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was
2: researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
0: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
1: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.